Well, welcome. It's good to have you back. I'm glad I didn't scare more of you off after last Sunday. We are in the second week of a sermon series on spiritual warfare. And for some of us, we're treading on some unfamiliar ground and moving into some deeper water. So I'm glad to see you come back and join us. If you were unable to hear the first sermon last week, I would urge you to download it from the website or from the app because uh, in a way that even more than normal, it is the, it's the case that each of these sermons is going to be building upon the next, the, uh, the, the previous one. So I'd urge you to get back and to uh, listen to that message if you didn't have a chance to do so. I want to start by reminding us of the text that kind of launched this series, and we're going to continue to remind ourselves of this passage throughout our entire six-week series in spiritual warfare. It comes from the pen of uh, the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church of Ephesus, his Ephesian friends, and it's in chapter 6, which is the armor of God passage with which we are very familiar, but, but, but nestled right in the midst of that in chapter 6, verse 12, is this very important affirmation. And it kind of makes, it lays the groundwork for all that we are talking about. So let's take a look. Let's read it together, if we will. This is from God's Word. Let's read together. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray. So, Holy God, Holy Spirit, would you please uh, enlighten us, make your word come to life for us, help us to see things we've never seen before, those things that frighten us or make us uncertain, give us courage to embrace them as your truth and to believe that in you we have the victory. In the name of Jesus, the matchless name of Jesus, and in that name we pray, amen. Last week I pointed out from this text that Paul is making this really essential point that we all must understand, that reality is more than that which we perceive with our five senses. You know, we think that if we see it, hear it, taste, touch, smell, that's what reality is, and that's certainly part of our reality. But in this passage and in other places in his writings, Paul makes clear that we kind of live in an overlap between two worlds. Not only the physical world, which we perceive with our senses, but also there is an overlap of the spiritual realm. We can't perceive that with our, with our, with our five senses, but it is every bit as real. Last week I said if you could imagine that you could put on a pair of UV spirit glasses and turn them on, we might be surprised to discover that this very space that we inhabit is also shared by spiritual beings. Some of those are good beings, angelic beings, uh, ministering spirits that, the, God, that the, the Father has given to us for our care and protection. But the Bible also teaches, and clearly in this passage when he talks about rulers, authorities, authorities cosmic power, spiritual forces of, of evil, some of those forces are not so nice. There are dark, evil forces that hate God and intend to do Him harm. And last week we learned about their boss, a guy whose name is Satan, the accuser, the adversary, or in the New Testament, his diabolos, which means the slanderer or the splitter, or my own personal favorite, Beelzebub. Beelzebub, which means? Yes, the Lord of the Ring. No, that's not right. The, <laughs> the Lord of Dung. Beelzebub, the Lord of Dung. There's another one that the, he was known by, another name that the devil was known by in pre-Civil War America, Old Mr. Scratch. Old Mr. 
scratch. Well, whatever name you know him by, Paul tells us that our battle in this world, the things we really battle, are not the human beings that present themselves. Whatever the conflict is that you are in right now, the tendency is to see that person on the other side of the conflict as the enemy and to understand your battle as being with them. Paul says you are not reading reality right. That really our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is with the, the enemy that is behind that. Old Mr. Scratch who is at work trying to make life miserable for you. And your first decision then as we are journeying in this, in this together. Your first decision comes right here. You have got to decide whether you believe that the witness of scripture from beginning to end. The witness of Paul. The witness of the, the gospel writers. The witness of the Lord Jesus himself can be trusted because they all claim that the devil is real and that there is a battle that we must fight. If you don't believe that, if you're not willing to be convinced by the, by the authority of Scripture on this, then the rest of this series might be interesting to you, entertaining perhaps, but it won't be very helpful. You need to understand that my perspective, at least, is that our enemy is real, that we are engaged in a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of this present darkness. So that's my starting point. After last Sunday's message, a visitor came up. He's been here a couple of weeks. He introduced himself as Evan, and he said, I just want you to know I'm going to be praying for you and for your wife. I'm going to be praying for your health. I'm going to be praying for your sleep. Because when you begin to speak on this topic, you are putting a big target on your back. He didn't know how right he was. Ten days ago, I got a letter from the IRS. It informed me that someone has stolen my social security number and they were trying to file a false tax return under my name. And as you can imagine, that has been a complete hassle and, and frankly a little frightening as you begin to peel away the layers of the onion wondering what you're going to find underneath all of that. I'll just tell you, I do not think it coincidental that for the first time in all of my life, this would be the, the week when suddenly my identity is stolen and someone is trying to wreak havoc with me. Because, and, and what that says to me is that we are on the right track because the enemy does not want us to continue in this way. So we're going to continue in this way. This, this morning we're going to turn. Thank you. We, we're not going to let him intimidate us. So here's our question for this morning. The question for this morning. Who's in charge of this world? It's a trick question, isn't it? It feels like a trap. Because on the one hand, we're Presbyterians, and if, any, if Presbyterians believe anything, we believe in the sovereignty of God, right? That God is ultimately in charge, that in the end, God's will will be done, right? But here's the, the thing that sometimes believers forget. The New Testament teaches that for the time being, the devil is in charge of this world. That this is his domain, And if you don't believe me, take it up with Jesus. Because three times, for instance, in John's gospel, chapter 12, chapter 14, and chapter 16, three times Jesus uses the same phrase to describe the devil. He calls him the ruler of this world. This is from the lips of Jesus. Up here is a picture of Satan as the angel of light who is summoning his evil forces to do battle in the world. 
That's the uh, interpretation of one painter. The Apostle Paul carries this theme also. He says that Satan is the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. And John, writing in his first letter, wrote this. We know that we, that is believers in Jesus, are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Wow, the whole world. And we might rebut rebut that. We might recoil at that idea and say, wait a second. This whole world was your creation, God. You aren't you the creator of everything? And every time you created, didn't you declare it to be good? So how could Paul say this? How could he claim that, that the world is in the thrall of the evil one? How could, how could, he, how could Jesus t- talk about the devil as the ruler of this world? What is the answer? Well, in one word, it's the fall. From the Sistine Chapel, here's Michelangelo's version of this. The fall. You remember the fall? That's back in Genesis chapter 3 where old scratch appears as the serpent to tempt Eve into disobedience, to disobey, to disbelieve and to, to disobey the father. And into the world entered sin in that moment. It's like this. God had given Adam and Eve the keys to creation. And in that moment when they rebelled and turned their back on God, they were forced to hand those keys over to Satan. Now someday God's going to take them back. But for the time being, this is Satan's realm. And if this is true, it changes our view on reality. And we actually need a shift in reality. We Christians ought to view things differently. If this is true, it explains the excess of evil that, that plays itself out in an organization like ISIS, for instance. But I dare say that we not just point to them to, to see the way in which the corrupting influence of old Mr. Scratch plays uh, its, its havoc in world structures. Because every government structure, every world structure, every authority in the world is impacted by the influences of the evil one. Even our own American culture. If you don't believe that, you're idolaters. Even our system, and we believe in our system, and we pray for and vote and do all of the things that we ought to as good Christian citizens. But believers in Christ, because we know of the power of the enemy, we ought to look with suspicion on every human authority structure. Because this world, for the time being, is Satan's domain. So I want to summarize where we've been so far. We live in this overlap of spiritual and physical realm that is inhabited not only by, by human beings, but also by spiritual creatures that are led by old Mr. Scratch, the, the enemy. And, and frankly, all of that's kind of bad news. Here's, though, the good news today. Today is a day of, of good news. And I'm going to sum it up in, in two words. It's a, it's a Latin phrase. Christus Victor. Would you say that with me? Now, even not knowing what it means, say it as if you know what it means. Ready? Christus Victor. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. First of all, I want to do a a little theology. Do you have it in you to, to lean forward and work a little bit here? I want to talk about the atonement. You've heard the word used. The atonement is a, is a theological word that means the price that was paid for our sin or our transgressions. In other words, the price that is necessary to be paid that would allow human beings and God to be reconciled once again. The atonement or atonement is one way to think of it. How we could once more be at one with the Father. Now the, dominant, uh, the predominant uh, view of, of theories of the atonement is something called substitutionary 
atonement. You may not know the phrase, but you understand the idea because it's been the dominant view for a thousand years in the Western church. And then we're a part of the Western church. Substitutionary atonement simply says this, that my debt was paid, my, my, my salvation was won by Jesus because he substituted himself for me on the cross. He went to the cross and paid a price for my sin that I could not pay because I was a sinner. Now, so Jesus substituted himself for me to set me free. That's the substitutionary atonement theory. And you'll find uh, all kinds of scriptures that talk about that, but uh, a, a very clear one comes in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter writes, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see the substitution? It's our sins in his body on the tree. He bore what was ours. So he substituted himself. It's a wonderful doctrine. And it's, it's clearly grounded in Scripture in a number of places. And we find great solace in this idea of Jesus paying the debt, paying the price, atoning for my, my sin in that way. It's not, however, the only theory of the atonement that we find in Scripture. And I want to talk about another one today that's less known, less popular, but as a matter of fact, it's older. It goes back to the 4th century, to the, the early Greek and Latin writers like Athanasius and Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus and John Chrysostom and, and all of these guys whose books you were reading last night to prepare for worship this morning. It goes back to the 4th century and it has come to be known because of a revival of this doctrine, this idea, in the last century. It's come to be known as, as Christus Victor. Christus Victor. What do you think that that means? What does it sound like it means? Victorious Christ, Christ the conqueror, exactly. It's the doctrine of the, Christ, the, the conquering Christ, the victorious Christ. And so this doctrine of the atonement, of what it took to save me, it's, it, it's a different emphasis because it views the life and the death of Jesus as a great cosmic battle with the evil forces in the world. Jesus laid down his life to defy and to defeat the Satan, Satan, and in so doing, he retrieved us from his clutches. This, this doctrine of Christus Victor is also known as the ransom theory. The ransom theory. From a passage that I know you're familiar with, Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. So this ransom theory, is the, it, the idea is that Jesus tra- offered his life in ransom, in trade, in exchange for mine, for ours. And so he freed us from spiritual captivity. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the devil thinks he's won it all. Only to discover three days later with the resurrection of Jesus that he's lost it all. Not only does he not have Jesus who has risen from the dead and defeated him, he doesn't have the captives that Jesus has set free either by his death. And so Satan has lost everything. This image of the ransom theory or the, the Christus, Victor, Christus Victor image, it appears in a very familiar piece of literature. How many are familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the wardrobe. So, remember Aslan, who is the Christ figure? He's the lion. At one point, Aslan offers himself in exchange for the boy, Edmund, who was always getting in trouble, that kid, right? He offers himself in exchange, and uh, Aslan allows himself to be tied down to the stone table by the minions of the white witch, 
And he is shaved, he is muzzled, and eventually he is killed. He's executed. It's a very sad point in the movie, in the book, isn't it? Of course, Aslan comes back to life. Edmund is freed. The, the, the white witch is defeated. And what you don't know is that having just read that great story, what you also read was Lewis's version of ransom theory of the atonement of Christus Victor. That's what we're looking at there. The very first, I want to take us through a a kind of a biblical journey to lay the groundwork. So again, I want you to to lean in here and work with me a little bit. The very first prophecy in the Bible addresses this. Where is the very first prophecy to be found in Scripture? Genesis where? Yes, very good. I love it. These Bible scholars, I'm surrounded by Bible scholars. Genesis chapter 3, right after the temptation and the fall, remember God curses the, the serpent, remember? And he does so with these words. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a prediction, and we talked about this last year in the story. This is a prediction way back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, of the coming one day of the coming of Jesus and his eventual victory over Satan. And this image was, I think, very uh, profoundly and powerfully portrayed in the opening segment when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Passion of the Christ. Let's take a look. That's my mom's favorite part in the show because she hates snakes. <laughs> that is Christus Victor. He will crush your head as you have bruised his heel. That's an image of the Christus Victor. We find it again in Psalm 110. There are many psalms that are messianic psalms, which means that even hundreds of years earlier, there is a prediction that the Messiah is going to come, the Messiah Jesus. And when you read those psalms, it is astounding to discover the the detail with which they address aspects of his life, his death, even his resurrection. Well, Psalm 110 is one of those. I want you to listen to one verse out of Psalm 110. The very first verse says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your, your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Would you be surprised to hear that this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? 27 times. The, uh, the apostles, uh, Paul and the rest, quote this passage because they consider it such a powerful declaration of the victory of Jesus. Here's what it's describing. It says, The Lord shall 
say to my Lord, so Yahweh, come on up, Yahweh will say to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So here is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he said, and this is what he's going to do to the devil. So here's my elder, my boss, and right now he's the devil. He's going to make an ottoman out of the devil. This is what the, the prophecy predicts. This is what I'm going to do to your enemy, the devil. Jesus, you're going to put your, your, your feet on him, rest your feet on him. Now, it's, it's ignominious enough for us, but the indignity is even greater in the Middle East. Did you know what an insult it is to show the bottom of your feet in the Middle East? They never cross their legs because it is just considered an, a supreme insult. Remember when that man threw his, the, in the Middle East, he threw the shoes at um, President Bush? Remember that image? That, that's because it's, can't, there, you just can't have a, a greater insult. And yet the prophet, in, the prophecy in, in, in the psalm is that one day Jesus will sit here, the right hand of God the Father, and this is what he's going to do with the devil. He's going to make a big ottoman out of him. Would you thank my ottoman as he returns to us? That's, that's an image of Christus Victor. And then the, the Apostle Paul picks up on it in Colossians chapter 2. Paul is also talking about the victory of Christ over Satan and his forces. And he does it in these very vivid images. Colossians 2 verse 15. He disarmed the powers and authorities. Those are spiritual words. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, in the first century, when a Roman general went out and fought a great battle, when he won, he would take the king and his family and the remaining soldiers that hadn't been killed on the battlefield, bring them back to Rome, often strip them naked, and then make them walk through the streets of Rome, surrounded on either side by the throngs of Romans who would jeer at them, mock them, make a spectacle of them, and cheer their triumphant general. Paul takes that image with which any Roman would have been familiar and he translates it into spiritual terms that Jesus is going to triumph over and he's going to make a spectacle of Satan and all of his forces. And finally, and these aren't the only places, but one more example, out of Hebrews. The writer of the Hebrews repeats this same theme when he declares that through the death of, uh, through his death, Jesus has destroyed the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Once again, do you hear that? We are in slavery. We are held in bondage. But Jesus, by his death on a cross, the writer of Hebrews says it, the writer of uh, uh, Paul says it in Colossians, he has set us free. He has delivered us. He has ransomed us. And so we find from the beginning of Scripture to the end the repeating theme of Christus Victor, the, the victorious conquering Christ. He has crushed the serpent's head. He has made a spectacle of him and his forces. And he has ransomed those of us who were in his clutches. Christus Victor. That's a hallelujah. Let's say hallelujah for that. <laughs> now, how was this accomplished? How did Jesus get this victory? Paul said it in Colossians. Hebrews repeated it. How did he win this great victory over Satan? By the cross. In both passages we read, he has accomplished this by the cross, by his blood shed on the cross. I'm going to talk next week about the power of the blood of Jesus, but you need to understand that the transaction that set us free, that crushed the serpent's head, that put the enemy on display in spectacle, all of that occurred in the moment that Jesus died on the cross. 
And I began to think about this this week. It explains a lot of what we see happening in the, in the natural world around Jesus during his crucifixion. Remember, we are told that he, he said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit and breathed his last. And in that moment, lots of things were happening, if you will recall. First of all, the entirety of the place was covered in darkness, remember? Even though it was in the middle of the afternoon, it was as dark as midnight because of some great eclipse. Not only that, the earthquakes began to shake the ground around them. Tombs were torn open. And we read that in Matthew, even that, that saints rose up from the tombs, walked into the city, and gave testimony to Jesus. I think all of those were uh, the death rattles of Satan. Do you know what that word means, death rattles, that phrase? If you, it, it's the last gasp breath of a person who's dying. If you've ever stood by a, the deathbed of someone, and I have many times, you'll hear them, <laughs> and, and those are called the death rattles. And I think that, that there's a moment when, when Satan has failed in his attempt to keep Jesus from the cross, when his temptation failed to, to get Jesus to change his mind, when Christ goes faithfully to the cross, he uh, undeservedly lays himself on that, on that cross and, and dies and sheds his blood. In that moment, all of creation, which had been under the boot of this evil ruler for so long, suddenly gets a glimpse of its freedom. And so you see it writhe and contort and revolt for a moment against the enemy that it hates and that has hated him. That's what happens on the cross of Christ. And, and I, as I thought about it, it struck me, really, the whole of Jesus' earthly ministry. Is, it's, a, it's a glimpse of this future epic battle between Jesus and the evil forces. Every time, when, when Jesus said, you will love your enemies instead of hating them. When, when Jesus, uh, when he reached down and, and, and lifted up those who were low and put down the powerful, when he, he welcomed the unwelcome, when he touched the untouchable, when, when Jesus raised up a little girl from death and a little boy from death and a man from death named Lazarus and gave them back to their families, when Jesus spoke to the evil spirits that had their talons in the, in the, in the soles of their hapless victims and ordered them to, leave, to let them go and with a reluctant but obedient shriek they did so, what you were seeing in all of those things was a down payment, a taste test, a preview of coming attractions which would be fulfilled when Jesus goes to the cross, ultimately days down his life, he sheds his blood and he destroys Satan in the process. That is Christus Victor. And one day, Christus Victor will return and he will finish the job that he started on the cross. One day he will take Satan and all of his minions and he will bind them and throw them into the lake of fire, never more to bedevil us again. I was thinking this week about this identity thief. You know, we can look at that as just fate. We can look at it as just a bad person doing bad things. Or we can see it for what it really is. An example of what happens when the devil, who we are, have already learned is a thief and a liar, convinces someone else to do his bidding. So I can either be mad at this guy who is simply a tool... And I mean that in every sense of the word. He's a complete tool. <laughs> or I can realize that really my battle is with his boss, the evil one. And I was thinking more about it. I said, when you, when you think about it, aren't all the works of the devil identity theft? 
Aren't all the works of the devil identity theft? Doesn't he want to steal from us our identity as beloved brothers and sisters in Christ? Doesn't he want us to doubt our place in God's family, to doubt our forgiveness, to doubt the redemption that has been given to us? Doesn't he want us to live as helpless victims instead of asserting the authority that we have as the redeemed, beloved, blessed, adopted children of the Heavenly Father? Isn't that the work that he's about? Identity theft? So then how do we reclaim the identity that is ours? How do we reassert the authority that has been given to us by Christus Victor? Last week I told you the first step. We have to have new eyes. We have to be willing again to see things from a spiritual perspective. Again, I'm not trying to freak you out. I don't want to suggest that there's a demon in every doorknob or, a, or behind every bush. There's plenty that's just broken in, in, a, in a broken world that accounts for evil and sickness and conflict and so forth. But there are times in our lives when we realize that what we are experiencing is, is so unremitting, so merciless, coming from every corner and attacking at every point of weakness, it would be, wouldn't be a bad thing if more Christians would pause and say, huh, I wonder if this is a spiritual attack. And if we we're able to see things in that way, we need to respond in a different way than we typically respond. I'm going to deal with this in more detail next week. I hope you won't miss next week. But uh, I wanted to give you a taste of, of how it is that we fight back. We fight back by talking back. We fight back by talking back. This is what Jesus modeled for us. This is what the apostles modeled for us. We fight back in the attacks of the enemy by speaking directly to him and to his forces out loud. And I'll tell you next week why it has to be out loud. This is not a prayer. This is not a prayer directed to God. This is language of rebuke that we speak directly to the evil one in which we take authority over him in the name of Jesus Christ and order him to leave us alone. So this is how it worked for me this week. When I was in the middle of this whole identity theft thing, I was stressed out about that, stressed out about this sermon series, which is a challenge, stressed out about some other stuff that has been weighing in on me, and all of it, it came to a point where I said, huh, I did what I told you to do. I opened my spiritual eyes and I said, huh, I think this is the enemy. I think this is an attack of the evil one. And so this is what I did. I spoke out loud these words, something like this. Satan, in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave me alone. You have no place in my life, no place in my family, no place in my marriage, no place in my children, no place in my emotions, no place here. In the name of Jesus Christ, I order you to be gone. And then on the heels of that, I prayed this. Holy Spirit, will you fill every place of emptiness that is behind Holy Spirit, fill me anew. And in that moment, I experienced a a remarkable and sudden peace. And I know that for some of you, this is going to sound unusual coming from a, a Presbyterian pulpit. But if it is true that we have a spiritual enemy, and if it is true that Jesus has triumphed over him, and if it is true that we have power and authority in the name of the risen Christ, then why wouldn't we want to claim that victory in our own lives and in the lives of those that matter to us? Especially when the forces of evil seem so irresistible at times. As I was reflecting and praying on this, 
I saw a video this week that I thought I'd share with you because it strikes right at home. Hey guys, uh, I'm, I'm in a destroyed Orthodox church in downtown Mosul. And I wanted just to take a minute to show you the destruction. Clearly, I mean, it's, and you can see it. I mean, this, this column down here, I mean, just the chandelier is just blown to bits. I mean, you can see the ISIS flag up here. And it's, I mean, it's terrible. At first glance, and really second, third, fourth, fifth glance, this place is just really, really ruined. This is where the altar was, which has just been completely blown apart. Giant gaping holes where mortars hit, hit the church. And it's, it's, it's terrible. But as, as my friend and I were walking, just walking along this way, he called me over and he said, hey, come look at this. And he pointed up. And we looked up and got to see this. Isn't that awesome? Over the, the destruction that Satan would like to wreak havoc in our lives, over the, the rubble sometimes of, of our life, it's easy for us to keep our eyes down there upon the, the, the nastiness in which we are engaged. And, and the Lord Jesus bids us raise our eyes to look up for we see there Christus Victor, reigning supreme, offering hope, promising a future that seems different than the circumstances of the moment. And I want for us, God's people, here at Chapel Hill, to begin to live as if we have that kind of hope, that kind of future, that kind of Lord. Christus Victor. Let us pray. We thank you for your victory over the evil one, Jesus. We thank you that you were not tempted to avoid the hard path of the cross, but that you set your face like a flint and you headed straight for Calvary and you endured all of it. Yes, you paid a debt for us. You substituted yourself for us, but you also engaged in a great cosmic battle between good and evil and you came out victorious. You have crushed the serpent's head. You have set us free. You have released the clutches of the enemy from us and restored us to freedom, life, hope, and to a future. You are the victorious one. You are the conquering Christ. You are Christus Victor. And so we praise and adore and declare you to be all of those things. Would you please help us, Jesus, to begin to live into this reality in our own lives? Help us to believe you have created us, restored us, redeemed us, and given us the authority to act in your name that more of evil might be destroyed, more land that has been stolen might be taken back, and more of those in captivity might be set free. We pray this in the name of Jesus.